and the world, okay? So Jesus is the son of David and son of God, and there's going to be a lot, I will have to say in future sermons, about the title son of God, because it could mean two different things depending on the context. But you'll see what I mean this morning uh, when I'm talking about him being the son of God, okay? So if this is why Jesus is the long-awaited hope of Israel and the world, then we need to ask and answer a different question. How is Jesus, how is one person, both the son of David and the son of God? Well, Matthew's narrative this morning answers that for us in a three-part sequence. So it's a narrative. It's got three parts that are in sequence that will answer this. First part is Joseph's plan, okay? Joseph's plan. Second part is the angel's command because he has to stop Joseph's plan. And then the third part is Joseph's obedience. Within that sequence of those three events, this text is going to show us how Jesus is both the son of God and the son of David. So as we get into our text, before we jump to it, I want to quickly do two things. First, I want to very fast review what we saw last time. And then the second thing I want to do is explain how our text this morning relates to our text last week, because almost never do people preach this text or read this text in light of the one that came before. But that's the wrong way to go about it. So I want to show how they're related. As far as the review goes, last time started the Gospel of Matthew. This book was written by Matthew, the Apostle Matthew, probably written in the 60s of the first century, and he wrote it to Jews who believe in Jesus. So if Jews for Jesus were a thing back then, that would be the recipients of this gospel. He wanted them to keep on keeping on because the Jewish leadership were very hostile to Jesus. Matthew also wanted to make an argument that could be persuasive to the Jews who have not yet accepted Jesus as the Messiah. So that's why this gospel was written. And in the first 17 verses, last time we saw that it started off with a bang. It announced the Messiah after so many centuries of silence from God. Now, this was an an announcement of gigantic significance. It signaled, actually, the announcement of a new creation that's going to come through the Messiah. Then after that announcement, it gives us this amazing genealogy that is nothing less than the royal genealogy that's required of the Messiah, meaning the Messiah has to be the heir of that genealogy in the first 17 verses. He must be the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay? And so the genealogy showed just that. And if you remember, hidden within the genealogy were all sorts of multiple items that kept screaming at you, this is David's heir. This is the chosen one. So if you want to catch all that, you could go find it on Sermon Audio because I can't revisit it here. We got a lot of our own text to get through this morning. Okay? But clearly, it's saying this is the son of David. And then you get to the end of the genealogy, and it does something very unexpected. Right, And we read so fast that we miss this. But it shows that Jesus, in verse 16, shows that Jesus actually is not the biological son of the man that the genealogy led up to. I don't know if you ever noticed that. The genealogy keeps saying, A fathered B, B fathered C, and so on. Then it gets to the end, and it says, Jacob fathered Joseph. So Joseph is the one the genealogy leads up to, but then it doesn't say, Joseph fathered Jesus. Instead, it goes out of its way not to say Joseph fathered Jesus. Instead, it says Jesus was born, not fathered, but born. And not born of Joseph, but born of who? It says he was born of Mary. And so then that leaves a huge question in the mind of the reader. 
And if, and if you've never thought that question before, again, it's because we read so fast, right? But this is a huge question, okay? And that is how our text this morning relates to the text last time. Our text this morning answers that question. And here's the question. Matthew, if you just announced that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, the one we've been waiting for, then why would you drop this royal genealogy on us to show us only in the end that Jesus is not the child of the person that the genealogy ended with, namely Joseph? I mean, what are you doing, Matthew? How in the world does this genealogy support the announcement in verse 1 that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, verses 18 through 25 answer that question. In fact, it answers it in the most profound way imaginable, and it tells us that we should have been expecting this kind of thing all along. So it will definitely be my privilege to unpack Matthew's answer, and I'm going to tell you his answer is deep. It goes really deep, right? And so once we understand the answer, it will become very clear that the Messiah is infinitely more than what the average Jew is even expecting. So the good news of the arrival of the Messiah gets even better when you understand just who he actually and ultimately is. So with that, let's look at the text. I mentioned that Matthew answers the question in a three-part sequence. The first part is Joseph's plan, okay? In order to understand his plan, first the text is going to give us a precarious situation. So we're going to look at verse 18. It just gives it to you straight. Now the first part of verse 18 is Matthew just saying what he's going to be talking about for our whole text this morning. So look at the first part of verse 18. He says, the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. So that's what this is about. It's about the birth of Christ. But actually, it's a lot more than that. This word birth is the same word used back in verse 1. It is the word genesis. And what do you think that word is in English? Genesis. This is, which means genesis or origin. So this account here is not ultimately about the birth of Jesus. In fact, his birth is only mentioned in passing at the very end. This instead is the answer to the question of who is Jesus? How did he come about? What is his origin? Now, I know when I ask questions like that, rightly, our spidey senses start to tingle because we know, wait a second, the second person of the Trinity has no beginning. He's God. He never came about, but always was. But here's what we need to remember. The second person of the Trinity became a man only a little over 2,000 years ago. Before that, he was not a man, right? Matthew's talking about the man, the humanity of Christ here. He's talking about the Messiah, okay? The second person of the Trinity did not become the Messiah until he was made, until he became flesh, right? So Matthew's talking about the man, the Messiah, how did this human king, the son of David, the son of Abraham, get here? What is his origin story? That's what this is. It's like a Marvel origin story, but it's true, okay? That's what verses 18 through 25 are all about. So then the rest of verse 18 introduces a very precarious situation. I'm going to read most of the rest of verse 18, but I'm going to leave off the last few words of the verse for now, okay? And I'll explain why in a little bit. I want us to understand the gravity of the situation, so here's what Matthew writes, if you look at verse 18. It says, after his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant. Okay, I'm going to stop there. What that sentence tells us is it gives us one main event that's supplemented by two important details. So one main event supplemented by two details. What's the main event? It says, quote, she was pregnant. That's the main event. 
Mary got pregnant. What are the two important details? First, it tells us this happened, quote, after she had been engaged to Joseph. Hmm, end quote. So she's, it's after she gets engaged to Joseph, she ends up pregnant. Naturally, you would assume they fornicated. But the second detail rules that out. The second detail says the pregnancy occurred, quote, before they came together, end quote. So they're engaged, but they haven't come together yet, and yet she's pregnant. So what that means is Mary and Joseph have never come together in that kind of way. You have this man and his betrothed. He's never touched her, but she's pregnant. Now, in normal circumstances, what would you assume? I don't think anybody would assume, oh my gosh, God must be in her flesh. You know, God in the flesh is in her womb. Nobody's going to assume that because that's never happened before this. He would assume she's unfaithful to him. So at this point, Matthew has explained why in verse 16, he went out of his way to say Jesus was not fathered by Joseph, but was born of Mary. It's because Joseph is not the biological father. And what makes this situation even worse is the cultural context. See, in our society, fiancés cheat on each other quite often. Usually, if you're smart, you'll just break off the engagement and go your separate way. Like, why marry somebody who's cheating on you before you, you get married, okay? Relationship gets broken off, nobody dies, people go on their merry way. But in ancient Israel, this is no mere engagement. Okay, Our English language falls short of what this actually was. It's a betrothal, but it's more than what betrothals used to be in our society. A betrothal is where a young woman is promised to be married to a man who's a few years older than her. It's an absolute guarantee. It's the culmination of a deal between the parents of the groom and bride that has gone back for years, right? When they were kids, Like smaller kids, the parents would be like, they'd be good for each other. And so then they work out a deal, and that's when they're engaged. They're engaged as we little children, okay? An engagement you could back out of, okay? But once the woman reaches an age where she could bear a child, which was usually the early teenage years, then the two families say, we got to take it beyond engagement. We have to make the formal arrangements. And so what the young man has to do is prove to the father of the bride that he is capable of taking a wife under his care. That's why usually he's a few years older. He has to show that he could leave his father and mother and take care of his wife. Now, once he's proven this, at whatever age he is, once he's proven this to the father of the bride, they then formalize the betrothal. It now moves from an engagement up to a betrothal. But here's what you need to understand about this. Once they're betrothed, there's no going back they were actually considered married. Betrothal in ancient Israel was part of the marriage. Joseph would be called Mary's husband, and Mary would be called his wife. Didn't you notice when we were reading, it says engagement, but then it calls him her husband, and it talks about divorce? We don't divorce, engaged people don't divorce in our society, but the betrothal back then was part of a marriage. And so a marriage was completed in two stages. First was the betrothal. They are considered married. But during this time, she does not go and live with her husband. She stays with her father until the second stage, which is a marriage ceremony. Only after the ceremony does she go to her husband and then consummate the marriage. The time in between these, you might say, well, how long are they married, but they're not together? The time between the betrothal and the ceremony was usually about a year long. Okay, this gave her one more year with her family, gave him one more year with his And then after that, it's going to be just the two of them. And all this information can be found in ancient rabbinic sources. So anyhow, I say all that so that the text makes sense. 
When the text tells us it was after she was betrothed to Joseph, but before they came together that she was found pregnant, Matthew was speaking in a way that Jews of his time would understand. She got pregnant after the betrothal, but prior to the wedding. And Matthew makes it clear, they never came together. So he's doing everything he can to let his original audience know Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus. Now, what complicates this situation is they're considered married, as I said. So think about it. If Mary ends up pregnant, this is no longer an issue of fornication. What is it an issue of now? Adultery. She's technically married, but she's pregnant. So everybody's going to assume she committed adultery. And according to the Old Testament law, what is the penalty for adultery? Death, right? Now, the Romans took over sometime before this, and they forbid the Jews from carrying out death penalties. So instead, what would normally happen, because they can't kill the person, they would hold a public trial to prove their guilt, and then she would be shamed the rest of her life, ostracized, cut off from everyone, and her child would forever be called a mazmer, or a mamzer, excuse me. Be called a mamzer, which means an illegitimate child with no right to any inheritance in Israel. And since they were technically considered married during the betrothal, if Joseph wants out, he has to divorce her. And that's why the text uses the language it does. So again, this is a very precarious situation for a young woman in ancient Israel. Now, Matthew is going to give us the answer up front in the last few words of verse 18. He tells us she was pregnant, quote, from the Holy Spirit, end quote. And I'll talk more about that in a while because the claim itself has huge implications. It's the claim that a virgin's womb was made to be with child by God. It's huge. But for now, I want us to continue in Joseph's mindset, right? He doesn't know this yet. The angel hasn't come to him yet. All he knows is Mary's pregnant and he didn't do it. That's all he knows, right? And so when verse 18 says it was, quote, discovered that she was pregnant, end quote, it doesn't tell us how it was discovered, but there are a few things we can deduce Word did get out, because if you were to read John chapter 8, verse 41, 30 years later, Jesus' opponents tried to insinuate he was born of fornication. They say, Abraham's our father. We weren't born of fornication, right? They said that to Jesus, which means, you know, rumors had spread. Now, how far the word got out at this point, we don't know. Joseph does have the option of trying to deal with it in private, which he's going to do. We'll see that. But you know how town gossips work. They got wind of something. Maybe she had the little belly popping out a bit. And, you know, wait, they had the marriage ceremony and then the baby's born just five months later or whatever. Yeah, people are going to talk. And so his opponents will use this to accuse him of being a mamzer rather than the Messiah. It, they even write it in the Talmud that Jesus is a mamzer, okay? So, again, the circumstances of Jesus' birth, his opponents tried to, to take advantage of it and spread uh, rumors about him. But again, getting back to my point, Apart from all that, we are dealing with the perspective and mindset of Joseph here, who doesn't know any of this. And by the way, Matthew, if, you pay, if you're paying close attention to the first couple chapters, he presents the birth of Jesus only from Joseph's perspective. Luke presents it only from Mary's perspective. That's why you got to read both. Now, Mary knew from the beginning what happened because the angel told her before, hey, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. He's going to overshadow you. You're going to have the Son of God in your womb. Okay, she knows that Joseph doesn't know that. And perhaps she tried to tell Joseph, but I'm telling you, I don't care who you are, you would not believe this if you were Joseph. You would not. It's unbelievable. It would take God himself to tell you through an angel. Then you would believe it, okay? So Joseph has to figure out what to do. 
And verse 19 tells us his plan. That's why I said the first part of the sequence is Joseph's plan. There's the situation. How is he going to deal with the situation? Look at verse 19. It says, so her husband, see it's calling her, or calling him her husband, right? Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her, divorce, right? Divorce her secretly. Simply put, Joseph opts for divorce because the betrothal counts as a part of a marriage. And here's the thing. The reason why he could do this is because of what Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 says. It says, Moses writes, if a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. Well, your betrothed that you've never touched ending up pregnant would seem like there's something indecent, right? That's what he's naturally going to assume. And so that's why he's going to opt for this, right? And the text tells us Joseph was a righteous man. Now, I think we, we, we miss what that means in this context. These words mean he was a law-abiding man. Joseph did his best to live according to the law of Moses. And I just quoted a verse from the law of Moses that gave him, a per, that gave him permission to divorce her. Now, the rabbis of the time took it even further and said, if you're betrothed and your partner cheats, you have to divorce her. Like, they take away the option. They say, no, the text implies you must do this. I don't think they were right, but that was the understanding of the time. So even if Joseph wanted to work it out, their understanding of the law said he had to divorce her, and he's a law-abiding guy. Now, I, I don't like the way hardly any of our translations translate this. I, I think the Greek is better understood to say this, quote, even though Joseph was a righteous man or lawkeeper, he did not want to disgrace her publicly. And you might say, what's the difference? Well, it's important to understand this because our translations give the impression that it, it, it was his being a righteous man that made him want to spare her the public disgrace. Because he's righteous, he wants to spare her. No, that's not what it's saying. The law allows him, okay, if he's going to follow the law to its detail, it allows him to make this as public as he wants. And he is a decent law keeper. Instead, what the text is emphasizing is despite his right to do this, he is merciful. He wants to spare her of any disgrace, even though he's within his right to not do that. The Jewish halakha, or rules of ethics back then, the rules of the time, the halakha, said that Joseph had two options here. He could publicly put her on trial, or he could privately write her a certificate of divorce as long as he has two witnesses. And so our text is telling us he's taking the second option. He doesn't want this big public thing. Instead, he's going to give her the certificate in the presence of two witnesses. My guess would be his father and her father. That way it keeps this all in-house and it protects her reputation the best that he can. So that's his plan. That's his plan. And from what he knows at this point, it is a reasonable plan. It shows, in my opinion, his character. Even though he might love her, he believes the law tells him he can't marry her. So he puts God above his feelings, right? And even though he thinks he was betrayed by her, he doesn't want to take revenge against her. He prefers to give mercy and compassion. He puts the well-being of a person that he thinks cheated on him, he puts her well-being above his own right to justice. That tells me a lot about Joseph. No wonder God is going to give one of the most enormous tasks in history to this man. I don't think we give Joseph anywhere near enough credit. What harder calling has any regular human ever had than to be the stepfather of the God-man? And then, I'm just telling you, it, 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 it's, it's huge, okay? So anyhow, all that brings me 
to the second part of the sequence. Joseph means well, but as we know, he got this whole thing wrong. Mary didn't do anything wrong, right? She was a faithful young woman. So before Joseph makes a huge mistake, God is going to send an angel to correct him and command him. Give him a command like, hey, don't go with your plan. It's wrong, right? And so that's what we're going to see next. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 begins by saying this. It says, but after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Okay, so baby Jesus is already in Mary's womb and God ordained that Joseph's going to raise the child. Joseph has a different plan, but Joseph's plan's not going to work. What God decrees is what's going to happen. So God makes sure after Joseph makes these plans, nope, I'm sending an angel. This guy's going to do what I need him to do. Okay, now, The Jewish people of the time, just like we as Christians, understand that at certain points in the redemptive historical timeline, God will speak to people in dreams. He either will do it himself or he will send an angel, okay? Whenever you have an event of huge importance in the redemptive timeline, and what I mean by that is God acts in history to save us. And when you read the Bible, there's key events like the Exodus or the prophets or whatever. When key events are happening, God will communicate this to his people in an extraordinary and special way. That's what's happening here. Something new is happening. And so he sends an angel to have a chat with Mr. Joseph here. And this is supposed to also make us think, if we know our Old Testament, we're supposed to think of Joseph's namesake. There's another Joseph in the Bible, isn't there? The Old Testament Joseph. And how did God reveal so many things to Old Testament Joseph? Through dreams, right? And what was the name of Joseph's father in the Old Testament? Jacob, right? Look at verse 16. What's the name of the father of this Joseph? Jacob. So again, remember last time I told you that the Jews understood prophecy to be more than just prediction and fulfillment. I mean, sometimes it's that, but a lot of the time God will take people and events in history and he'll create out of them a pattern that repeats itself until it reaches its most ultimate fulfillment. So here's another example of this. Another Joseph, who's the son of another Jacob, receiving a dream from God about something huge in the redemptive timeline. For now, the reason I say that is the Jewish audience would have noticed this. A man named Joseph with a dad named Jacob is getting a dream from God. They would understand the significance of this. Something big's going to happen. And if I was a Jew 2,000 years ago, this would be a fitting way. I would think that God is finally breaking 400 years of silence. He's doing it in a way similar to the founding of Israel itself. So anyway, I guess what we need to notice next as we look back at the text, though, is what the angel says, the content of the revelation. The rest of verse 19, the angel says this, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, there are two really important truths, important things in that sentence. First one I want you to notice is the angel calls Joseph son of David. And that is very important for a couple reasons. First, it confirms what the genealogy already showed us. Joseph is the royal heir to the throne of David, but Joseph is not the Messiah. But he contains the lineage from which the Messiah will come. That's why he's called son of David. Second thing we need to notice is son of David is a title for the Messiah. There is only one other person in the New Testament ever called the son of David. You know who that is? Jesus. In fact, Jesus is the only one that's ever called the son of David except one time. There's only one time in the entire New Testament that the word son of David is applied to somebody other than Jesus and it's right here of Joseph. Think of the significance 
of that title only being used for Jesus except once and being used right here of Joseph. What that is telling you is Jesus inherits the title from this man. That's why this man is in the story. That's why this man must be the one who marries Mary. That's why he must legally adopt this child so that the royal lineage and the title son of David would rightly belong to Jesus. My point is Joseph isn't just some random dude. He's the right dude from the right lineage. And he was born for this purpose. And because God ordained Joseph for this purpose, he made sure Joseph was going to be a law-abiding man, someone who was loyal to God. So that's the first thing, son of David. A lot of significance. Once Joseph names Jesus, henceforth only one person's ever called the son of David again, Jesus. He takes this, this, this title. He inherits it. Now, the second thing from the sentence is even more important, okay? Now, at first, that might be hard to imagine. What could be more important than the Messiah having the royal lineage? Well, I think a bigger question should be asked first, and then the, and then the answer becomes obvious. So here's the bigger question. Under what possible circumstance would God need to make the ultimate royal son of David an adoptee? Think about that. Why would the ultimate son of David be adopted instead of an actual son of David? Why not just have a real son from the royal line, from, from the royal lineage? Wouldn't that always be preferable than conferring it onto an, an, an adoptee? Well, if you let the significance of that question take root in your mind, then the answer to the other question becomes obvious. What could be more important than the Messiah having the royal lineage? It's far more important that the Messiah not have a human father. Far more important that the Messiah not have a human father, but literally have God as his father. That's the most important thing about him. Now, I want you to think about it. If the Messiah is going to literally have God as his father, then he cannot be of the royal lineage because royal lineages are passed from father to son, father to son. As soon as God comes in and says, this man has no father, but I'm his father, he's outside of that lineage. It's impossible for one who has God as his father to have a patrilineal lineage, right? Now, Jesus is still a descendant of David from Mary's side, as Luke shows us, but that's not the royal genealogy. Only Joseph's side is the royal side. So then the question is, how do we reconcile these two truths that seem irreconcilable, son of God, son of David? Because it's telling us he's both. Okay, the Messiah has to be the royal son of David, but the Messiah also has to be the son of God. There are too many Old Testament predictions, like Micah chapter 5, verse 3, telling us that his origin is from eternity. He cannot be a regular human. Isaiah 9, telling us he'll be called mighty God and he'll reign forever. He cannot be a regular human. But there's also another factor that we need to take into account. Sin, right? The sin nature has passed to all of Adam's descendants. Every regular human has sinned because we were all born after Adam's fall. We inherited his nature and his sin, right? We, we inherited that from Adam. And by virtue of our human birth, we are in union with Adam. That's how, we're, how we come into this world. By Jesus having no earthly father, but instead being formed, created ex nihilo, the, the humanity of Jesus, made ex nihilo out of nothing within the womb of Mary, by God himself, this bypasses the transfer of the sin nature to Jesus. So now you have a human being born 
like Adam was before the fall in many respects. He's being born into this world ruled by the curse, so he'll get hungry and he could die, but he's sinless, right? He doesn't have the sin nature, which puts him in a position to be a new Adam, the head of a new humanity that will succeed where the first Adam and the first humanity failed. This would put him in a position where he could impute to us or, or cause us to inherit his righteousness and his eternal life. Think about it. In Adam, we inherit his sin, his nature, and death. So if there's going to be a new Adam that we inherit something from, then this makes sense. We inherit his righteousness, we inherit his holiness, and we inherit eternal life. Now, of course, that all comes to uh, fruition in its fullness at the resurrection, Okay, that's when we become sons of the next age, sons and daughters of the next age. My point is, right, the Messiah was to come with a much bigger mission than simply sitting on David's throne as a, a stronger, better version of David. Okay, the Jews were thinking, no, Messiah comes, he conquers the nations, Israel rules the world, right? And a lot of that's still going to happen in some kind of way because it's all prophesied. But we, and we have no right to allegorize that stuff because it might not fit neatly into our theology. But nevertheless, we must realize that Christ's mission was way bigger, infinitely bigger than just him being a human ruler that conquers our enemies. Okay? Christ, if Christ was a regular son of David, if David was Christ's patrilineal father, then Jesus would be a sinner like David. And can a sinner save you? So if, 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 if your account gets switched with Jesus and he's a sinner, you get the credit for his sin, he gets the credit for yours, you both still go to hell, right? It doesn't work, right? That's why he can't be a regular son of David, okay? A regular human cannot save us of our sins. A regular human cannot bring in the perfect age to come. A regular human can't bring about the resurrection. A regular human can't bring forth the new covenant and, and the Holy Spirit being poured out on all of God's people. A regular son of David can't do that. Now, the reason I bring all this up is because the Messiah is meant to bring into effect all of that. And yet the Israelites never stopped and asked, how is that possible? How could a regular son of David bring all that in? They, they just were content to see him as a son of David. And Jesus will correct that later in, in the book of Matthew. He will quote to them Psalm uh, 110 verse 1, where it says, this is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Christ's point is he asks them, who's the, whose son is David or whose son is the Messiah? They're like David's. He says, if the Messiah is only David's son, why does David call him Lord? Who calls their son Lord? Okay, David sees him in heaven at the right hand of God and calls him Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, right? And so there's this tension. He is a son of David, but he's more than a son of David. Okay, for him to be at the right hand of God, he would have to be God, right? And yet the Messiah still has to be David's son. Because that's the promise. He can't be both if he has a human father. Additionally, you think of the, the Son of Man in Daniel 7, which people understood that's the Messiah. He's in glory, blazing, walking on the clouds, approaching the Father. Again, how could a regular son of David ever do that? So the Messiah must be both son of David and son of God. And here's how. The one in that womb is God in the flesh. He has no human father, but if he is legally adopted by the one who does have that lineage, Joseph, and Joseph declares him the heir, now you have a Messiah that is the son of God and also the son of David of the royal line. That's what Matthew's showing us in this. That's why it's, it's bigger than just a Christmas message. That's my point. It is that, but it's more. 
Okay? And so for this reason, the angel says something that is going to have the force of a command in verse 20. He says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. In other words, take Mary as your wife. Joseph, you don't have a choice on this. Okay, why? Why should you not be afraid? He continues, he says, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In other words, Joseph, son of David, Mary has not been unfaithful to you. She's been faithful to God. The fullness of the time has come. The one God promised from the beginning is in her womb. He is not the product of consummation with another man. No, the Ruach HaKodesh, the one you've heard about in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit took her womb and created out of nothing in her womb, with her womb, the child of promise. You therefore must marry her because you are a son of David and he must be a son of David from your line. Now, could you imagine being Joseph? Could you imagine hearing this? Could you imagine the weight of this? No one in all of history was given such a task, okay? To be the adopted father of God in the flesh, to raise as a child the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15. And Luke tells us Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. He was still fully human. So in his flesh, he had to learn. Could you... (coughs) I'm sorry, I'm getting excited. Could you imagine... That you're the one teaching the God-man to memorize scripture? That you're changing his diaper or loincloth or, or whatever it is? Could you imagine that? Just the weight of this, this, this little child crying, and yet this is the one who created everything. It's just amazing. Joseph was chosen for such a privilege, and yet with that privilege will come constant danger as the next chapter will show us. It cannot be easy to have the task of Joseph. And I'm not sure that Joseph quite understood the significance of the fact that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, made the pre-existent second person of the Trinity into a human being in the womb of his wife. I mean, how do you process that, right? I'm not sure if he fully got that. It took hundreds of years of thinking about this for me to even frame that sentence in that way. Not that I've thought of hundreds of years, but the church has. That's where we get, the, that's where we get this language and these words. In the words of Douglas O'Donnell, the Holy Spirit genesis Jesus, right? That's why Matthew says this is the genesis of how Jesus came about. The Holy Spirit knit together the inward parts of Jesus, making him into a fearfully and wonderfully made human that is still God. I mean, it's, it's a mystery. We call it the hypostatic union, that Jesus in one person has two natures, divinity and humanity, that don't mix. It's not like he's half God, half man. No, fully God, fully man. How, this all, how these two natures subsist in the one person is a mystery, but it's true. And that's what the scripture tells us. And the Holy Spirit's the one that did this in the womb of Mary. Now, people always say, but how did the Holy Spirit do this? You think I know? I mean, this was probably more complicated than the creation of the entire universe itself. But the fact that the Holy Spirit is the one that did this is meant to bring our mind back to creation. You already had the word Genesis. You go back to the beginning of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 3. Who's there overshadowing the deep to to, to begin the, the forming of the world? It's the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting the language that the angel uses to Mary. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the angel replies to her. She's like, how could, I've never known a man. How could I become pregnant? He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Language similar to Genesis. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called what? The Son of God. This most definitely is 
to, meant to remind us that this does signify the beginning of a new creation. This is the most important thing, loved ones, that has ever happened in history, that God became flesh, that God entered his own creation as a man in order to conduct the most awesome search and rescue mission that has ever been imagined. The technical word for this event is the incarnation. The incarnation, it is when God incarnated himself as a man. As the ancient church used to say, God became a man so that he could bring man to God. Or divinity took on humanity so that he may bring humanity into union and fellowship with divinity. The one God exists eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when the fullness of the time came, the Father sent the Son, the second person, to be born of a woman in order to redeem us. Our text this morning is telling us how. It was the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, that united the eternal Son with humanity. It's just, again, amazing. And a little rebuke for myself and, and maybe the rest of us. When you think of the works of the Holy Spirit, what do you normally think of? Like gifts, right? I think it's sad that the first thing we think about with the Holy Spirit is spiritual gifts, as great as those are. The most important work that the Holy Spirit ever did, the most complex, most powerful work He ever did was taking the eternal Son of God and making Him flesh. There is no greater work of the Spirit of God. We really should reflect on the magnitude of this event a lot more and thank Him a lot more and meditate on the fact that the incarnation is the beginning of a new creation. And if it's come in part already through Jesus, it will come in fullness after He returns. I believe a millennium after He returns, people could disagree, but sometime after He returns, the full new creation will come in its fullness. And it's all signaled by the fact that God became flesh in the womb of Mary by the work and power of the Holy Spirit. I try to thank the Holy Spirit for a lot of things every day, but I forget that one, and that one's the most important. Our salvation depended on that. But anyway, getting back to the angel's message to Joseph, the weight of it would have seemed infinite. In verse 21, the angel continues. Let's take a look. He says, She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So Mary's going to give birth to a man-child, and his name's already been picked, Jesus, or Yeshua in Hebrew. It's a shortened version of Joshua, and it literally means Yahweh saves. So of course, this is the most fitting name for the Savior, because through him, God truly does save. God saves through him, God saves in him, God saves by him. It's by Jesus, it's by Yeshua. That is why the name Jesus, the Messiah, is above all names right? And so the angel also, in addition to the name, announces the mission of the Messiah here. And it's very different from the mission as normally understood by the Jews of the time. See, they thought of a political mission, just like a lot of Christians today think our mission is to win elections. You got it wrong. Yeah, we should vote biblically, right? But our goal is not to win elections, okay? The goal of the Messiah was not fundamentally political. It's going to be so much more than that. See, they were expecting a time of Jewish conquest, but God understood that there are far worse things than the Romans that need to be conquered. Sin and death need to be conquered. In fact, there's a whole set of Old Testament prophecies that talk about the Messiah conquering sin by dying in our place. The most obvious and fundamental one is Isaiah 53. Most of us know that, right? Jesus will one day save us from all of our enemies, but in his first coming, he came to save his people from the worst enemy of all, sin. Now, 
It should be noted that when it says, he will save his people from their sins, the words that Matthew uses for his people uh, is always used in the New Testament, this word laos, to refer to ethnic Israel. People will take this passage and, and say, well, his people is referring to, to the church. Eventually, yes, but not in this verse. This verse is actually quoting or alluding to Psalm 130, verses 7 and 8, where it directly says, God will save Israel from their sins. So it's referring to the remnant of Romans 11. It's referring to the whole of Israel at the end of Romans 11 that repents before Christ returns, right? He will save his people from their sins. But this is not meant to exclude the Gentiles. He's just starting first that it's, he comes first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. By the end of Matthew, he's going to use different language. Take the gospel to all the nations where the salvation of both Jew and Gentile are completely wrapped up in each other and ultimately wrapped up in Christ, right? I just want people to avoid a replacement theology reading of that text. The Greek actually makes it impossible. Anyhow, so Joseph, summarizing, receives this big announcement here. This child is the son of God. Through you, he will also be the son of David. As the Messiah, he has to be both. That is the child that's growing inside of Mary right now. So marry her. Take good care of her. Take good care of the child. Now, normally one of the most important privileges of a father back then is the right to name their kids. So mothers, no, anyway, so the father had the right to name their kids. But since Joseph is not the father, but God is the father, God's the one who picked the name. Joseph must simply obey. And by Joseph then marrying Mary and publicly in front of other humans naming him as he's circumcising him on the eighth day, Joseph is adopting him as his legal heir. And of course, the name that he adopts him with is the very name chosen by Jesus' real father, God the Father, which is very interesting. So with all that, Joseph has the angel's command, which is really God's command because God sent the angel. All that's left is for Joseph to obey it. So you would expect me to move to the final sequence, but I can't because before Matthew takes us to the final sequence, he interrupts his own narrative. He stops the story to give us an explanation. All that's happening here is happening because the Bible said it would happen. And he wants to point that out really quickly. An unbelieving Jewish reader or hearer would be surprised and even scandalized by the idea that he's saying the Messiah is God in the flesh. And we know there's entire swaths of Old Testament scripture that say that, but it passed by their notice, right? Well, Matthew anticipates this. So he stops his narrative for a second to go straight to an Old Testament passage that clearly anticipates this. In fact, it demands it. So look at verse 22. Matthew says this. He says, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. So he's making the declaration here. This is in the Old Testament. So I picture the Jewish listener going through the mental Rolodex of all the prophetic statements about the Messiah, everything they've ever been taught, thinking, which prophet could he possibly be talking about? I never heard that one of our prophets said it would happen this way. Well, Matthew's saying, no, it's there. It's clearly there. In fact, um, Matthew uses this formula all the time to say this fulfills the Old Testament. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the, the prophet. And so this is the first time Matthew does this. Look for it a lot more times in the book of Matthew. He's telling you this is the word of God that says this. So what's he quoting? He's quoting Isaiah 7.14. Look at verse 23. He quotes the passage and says, See? The virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel. Matthew then adds his own commentary at the end of verse 23 by saying, 
which is translated, God is with us. And that is a very literal translation because Imanu in Hebrew means with us and El means God. So Imanu El does mean God with us, right? And so here you have a passage that directly says a virgin will be with child and he'll be called God with us. That's exactly what Matthew has shown with the narrative. So we could just move on, right? Not so fast. There's a problem. No Jew prior, no Jew in Israel prior to Matthew ever applied this verse to the Messiah. Luke is doing the same. He doesn't quote it, but this verse is in the background of just about everything Luke says, okay? So Christians from the beginning use this verse, but Jews never saw this as a messianic verse. They never expected a virgin to have a baby, nor were they expecting the baby to be God in the flesh. And yet we just read the text. It seems so clear. How could they miss this? Well, here's the thing. The context of Isaiah 7 seems to have nothing to do with the Messiah. The context is in the 700s B.C., Judah is ruled by a very faithless king named Ahaz. Two other kingdoms want him to join them in attacking the superpower of the day, Assyria, but he refuses. So then those two kings decide to gang up on him. They plan to invade Judah, overthrow him, and replace him with a puppet that they can control, right? And so then he's thinking, well, forget these guys. I'll make an alliance with that superpower, Assyria, and that's how I'll protect Judah. Well, God then says, no, 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 no. He sends the prophet Isaiah to rebuke Ahaz and say, you don't need to appeal to pagans for help. I will give you a sign. I will give you a sign. A young maiden will have a child, and before that child is old enough to know the difference between good and evil, these two kings will be dead. That's the prophecy. And so when you go back to that chapter and read it, you start thinking, well, wait a minute. This doesn't necessarily seem to be talking about what Matthew's talking about. And then you read in chapter 8, and you see that this gets fulfilled by Isaiah's own son. He has a son named Maher Shalal Hashbaz, fun to say. <laughs> and so Isaiah, at the beginning of chapter 8, tells somebody to record before it happens. Public witness, record this. I'm going to marry this prophetess. I'm going to have a baby. And we're going to have a baby. Obviously, Isaiah's not having a baby. But there, a baby's going to be born. And before that kid is old enough to, to know good and evil, God's going to destroy those two kings. And this will prove that God is with us. And so Isaiah goes and does this, has the baby. Within a couple years, those two kings are destroyed. So it was already fulfilled, right? It was already fulfilled. That's why most Jews were not looking toward this as a messianic prophecy. Now, the Hebrew word that's translated virgin here is the Hebrew word Alma, and it just means a young unmarried woman. <clears throat> now, virgin's a good translation because in that culture, if you were young and unmarried, you were a virgin, right? But the word doesn't mean she has to get pregnant while being a virgin. It just means somebody who's a virgin right now is going to be pregnant really soon. And by the time their baby is a certain age, these two kings are going to be gone, right? And so again, if that's what's happening here, how can this verse be about Christ? Well, let's consider a couple things. First, outside of Israel, right, hundreds of years after this prophecy was fulfilled, when the Hebrew Bible was being translated into Greek, they chose a Greek word that can only mean virgin, not young maiden. It's the word parthenos, right? So what that means is that, that the Jews who translated the Hebrew into the Greek still expected a future fulfillment. They were saying, yeah, it's cool what happened with Isaiah's kid, but we don't think that's everything there is to this. And so that's why they're saying, we're going to take a more narrow word, okay, that you, you can translate Alma as parthenos. And so, so we're going to take the most narrow meaning possible to where this person has to be a virgin. And there's good reason for that. Even though Isaiah chapter 7 and 8 speak of Isaiah's child, 
Chapters 9, 10, and 11 continues the theme of a promised child. Seamlessly, right after it, right? But now the child is the son of David. Now the child lives forever. Now the child's called mighty God. Chapter 9. And then in chapter 11, the child's called the stump of Jesse, which is just another way of saying son of David, because Jesse's David's father, right? And he's, all of his work is completely wrapped up in the Holy Spirit in chapter 11. So all of this was meant to be taken together. 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Yeah, this immediate sign, this immediate birth, but it points to another birth, a son of David that lives forever that we will call God. And all of his activity is completely immersed in the work of the Holy Spirit, right? So yes, there was an immediate sign to Ahaz. That sign did show them at that time that God was with his people, but the sign goes beyond that because when it says God will give you a sign, you is plural. The sign wasn't just for Ahaz. It was for all Israel in all generations. And that's why they rightly understood there has to be more to this. And so then you keep reading Isaiah and there is more to this, okay? And that's why they translated the Greek version the way they did, okay? The Hebrew word literally means someone who is a virgin, right? And the Greek becomes more specific and requires the pregnancy to happen while still being a virgin, okay? That means Jews at this time were starting to understand that maher shalal hashbaz, was not the fulfillment, but he was the type or shadow that now set the stage for the real fulfillment of a person who will literally be God with us. See, we have to clear up some misconceptions about Hebrew prophecy. We tend to think that it's simple prediction and then fulfillment. That's how Western minds think, okay? And yes, a lot of prophecies do work that way, but the vast majority of them work like the way Isaiah works this one. A real event in history creates a type or shadow that literally fulfills something that God said, but it points forward to a final fulfillment that is even more literal. And I want you to hear that. The final fulfillment is the most literal version of it. It's not a spiritual one. It's literal. You literally, in Matthew, have a virgin being made pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the child in her womb is literally God. What more literal type of fulfillment can you have than that? Okay? And Matthew, along with all the other New Testament authors, is going to show the fulfillment of a lot of the Old Testament in this kind of way. So I'm going to give you one of those million-dollar words. It's called typology. Typology, you have to learn to keep your eye out for it. Patterns being set in the Old Testament that keep repeating, that all point to Jesus, and then you see it all when he comes in the New Testament. Typology, right? So this was a... I know a lot of people today would object. Well, I don't think that's how we should read documents. Well, who cares? That's how they read them back then. That was a very common, understandable, acceptable things, a way to read the Scripture among the Jews. They wrote a lot of stuff at this time. We see this not just in the New Testament, right? They would take events in the Bible, and they would see repeated prophetic fulfillments in later people and events. And so that is all Matthew's doing. They would read it. They would hear it. They would not instantly have a problem with what they're seeing. So no, it's not double fulfillment like the dispensationalists say, early one and later one. And if you don't know what a dispensational is, don't worry. And it's not a literal fulfillment followed by a spiritual fulfillment like the covenantalists will say. Again, if you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. Instead, what this is, is it's just repeated fulfillments with each one showing us what to expect in the final version. And the final version always ends up being the most literal fulfillment of them all. And so the Jewish problem was not Matthew's use of this text. Their problem was they were never taught to connect Isaiah 7 and 8 with 9, 10, and 11 which they should have because they're right next to each other. Had they connected them, this all would have made perfect sense. 
They were meant to see that Messiah is both son of David and son of God all along. Okay, so with Matthew clearing that up and telling us the Bible anticipates this, he now moves us to the final part of the sequence. Joseph obeys the command. Let's look at verses 24 and 25. There's not a whole lot to say here. It says, when Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus, okay? So he woke up. He didn't take six months to obey. He immediately obeyed. He took Mary as his wife, which means even if people know she's pregnant, he is taking responsibility for that pregnancy. Yeah, people are going to assume wrongly that he's the father, but regardless, whatever is inside of Mary is now the responsibility of Joseph. To, now, to guard the legitimacy of the pregnancy and of the prophecy, it tells us that Joseph did not have marital relations with her until after Jesus was born. That way, no one could say that the baby was Joseph's biological son. Instead, Joseph and Mary could insist that this child is the son of God. Now, since it says they didn't do what married people do until Jesus was born, that means they did do what married people do after Jesus was born. And I'll just leave it like that. The Roman Catholic doctrine that Mary remained a virgin in perpetuity, you know, for the rest of her life, that is false. That's false. The fact that the New Testament will tell us that Jesus had brothers and sisters means that Mary and Joseph had their own kids. Like, what do they do with the fact that in Luke, it calls Jesus the firstborn son of Mary? You don't have a firstborn if you don't have any others. You just have one, right? So the New Testament many times shows us that Joseph and Mary had their own kids afterward. But the Catholics had to take it and twist it because they venerate her and practically want to worship her. So somehow they have to make her a perpetual virgin. And listen, that's nonsense. And we got no room for that, right? The scripture says what it says. Christians must not do that kind of thing. But anyhow, getting back to the text, the last thing it says is this, and he named him Jesus. Not only does this show Joseph's faithful obedience, but on that eighth day when he circumcised Jesus and named him, this was the formal adoption. He was formally declaring Jesus as his son and the royal heir. He, Jesus, now inherits the lineage, the royal lineage of David. There's a, a work in the Talmud called Baba Batra, and, and the rabbis in Baba Batra say that if a man declares a child to be his son, it must be believed and accepted, right? That's almost a direct quote. This was their law back then. So as soon as Joseph circumcised him, said, this is my son, his name's Jesus, it has to believe, be believed, it has to be accepted. All that is Joseph's, including the lineage and the right to rule, now belongs to his son, Jesus. So it constituted a legal adoption. So all of this is how Matthew answers the question of how Joseph's genealogy can be applied to Jesus when Joseph's not the biological father. It also answers why the Messiah would need to be adopted into the royal lineage in the first place. It's because God is his father, and so he cannot be David's natural patrilineal heir. Now, personally, I love looking deeply into this. Some of you might have been like, come on, Steve, that was way too much. And maybe I disagree, but that's because I'm crazy on this kind of stuff. I love seeing how Matthew's presenting the king of the Jews. I, I just do. And, and I pray with anticipation that as God removes the hardening of Israel's heart and starts to circumcise their hearts, that they will look closely at things like Matthew and say, wow, it was so obvious. How did we not see this? And as Paul tells us, he tells us in Romans 11, that when the salvation of Israel happens, it will bring about the resurrection of the dead. 
In the meantime, Christ is having us preach salvation to all the nations because it's only after the fullness of the nations come into salvation that Israel will then follow. So again, I read stuff like this. I'm like, man, we got work to do. We get to see this. We get to marvel at this. We get the glory in this. But there's people who are blinded to it right now. So let's get the gospel out there and so that blindness will be lifted from them. Again, there's so much wonderful doctrine wrapped up in the first 17 verses, the announcement of Christ, right? And there's a ton of beautiful doctrine in the narrative of his conception and his birth. So as I close, I remind us again, not all passages of Scripture have an application for you. I know we always want to figure out, all right, what do I go do in light of this? I don't know how you could apply a one-time event that happened to be the most significant thing that ever happened. You're not going to apply this. No God man's going to end up in your womb, right? It's just not going to happen, right? But here's what you can take from this. You can marvel. You can marvel. You could tell everyone you know about this. You could spread the good news that the king has come. You could tell them that the king is the savior and that the savior literally is God with us. You can also then look at this closely and see how Matthew reads scripture and learn how to read it that way yourself. You can learn to read it the same way that the text is showing us how to read it. And then what will happen is once you start reading it this way, your mind will get blown again and again and again as you start to discover all these fulfillments in the New Testament of these Old Testament like nuggets, Easter eggs that have been hidden um, all throughout it. It's amazing. This has been happening to me a lot lately. And every time a new mind blow happens where I'm like, you know, what, that was there the whole time? Then it just causes me to marvel at God even more. I'm like, this can't be the work of man. This can't be the work of fiction. People can't do this. Only God could put all this in here and orchestrate it this way and fulfill it so incredibly perfectly. Okay, so that's been happening to me a lot lately. And I pray that kind of thing will happen to you because I'm telling you, the more you discover stuff like that, the more motivated you are to open the Bible every day to try to find more. You find one treasure, what do you want to do? Keep digging, right? And so I pray that you will start to see these treasures and start to, to just want to dive into the Bible head first and then start living in accordance with it. So that's the only real application I could give you from this. Marvel at your God, dive into the word, keep studying more and more to learn and behold him more and more. And as you do that, it will affect the way you live. Now, if there's any unbelievers here, just got a, a, a simple word for you. I've already said that, that Jesus being, being the God becoming man, Jesus being conceived in the flesh, uh, in the womb of Mary, coming in the flesh, was God's most epic search and rescue mission ever done. And he came to rescue sinners like us. People who are guilty and deserve to go to hell, but God comes into his own creation as a man, earns that righteousness, and then takes our penalty for us. He, not only is it amazing that he became a man, but it's amazing that after he was born, he was born for the purpose of dying for our sins. He was born for the purpose of taking our penalty so that we wouldn't have to. Why would God do that? Because God really loves us, as we sang right? And so God makes this offer. He summons people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to turn away from their sins and to come to Jesus Christ in faith who died for us, who was incarnated for us, born for us, fulfilled the law for us, died for us, and rose for us, right? So believe on Jesus. Turn to him and be saved. Don't stay in your sins. If you have any questions about this, come and talk to me and I'll gladly walk you through it. What we're going to do right now is we're going to pray and then I'll quickly give the communion warning, and then we'll have one more uh, a song, um, which will be followed by the Lord's Supper. So let's go to the Lord.